0: You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our
1: website at firstfamily.church. Thank you, church. We won't be dismissing our kids. They'll be staying with us today for what we have every couple of months we call our family service. In fact, Travis is going to join me today and we're going to team teach this set of chapters, all right? So we'll kind of play a little tennis here. Is that okay, Travis? That sounds great. Back and forth. I'll do a little teaching. He'll do a little teaching. Uh, We're going to actually tackle two chapters that are part of about an eight or nine chapter section in 1 Samuel. You know, we're in a series called The Kings and the King. we're looking at the various kings within this time of Israel's history and showing how they point to the ultimate king we're in this section where David's on the run. He's the coming king. He's going to come after Saul. Saul knows that, doesn't like it, so he's chasing David to hopefully kill him. We know God doesn't allow that. We're seeing how this plays out historically and narratively in chapters 21 through 29. And we're looking this morning specifically at chapters 25 and 26. So take your Bibles, would you? And locate with me 1 Samuel 25 and 26. Our plan today is to kind of teach these theologically and then practically. I'll take the theological section, then Travis will follow up with a practical admonition, and then he'll take the chapter 26 and take it theologically, I'll take it practically, and we'll end with some focus time for our seniors, how this set of verses will speak to them, okay? After each of these sections, we'll take some questions, so if you have some, maybe one or two after each one, we'll take those, text them into the number on the screen you saw earlier or on the one in your worship folder. We'll try to handle those. To begin, though, let me say, I want you to kind of see if you can tell me what you recognize on the screen behind me. Your Bibles are open to 25 and 26, for Samuel. When you see this cartoon, what are two words that come to mind? Where's Waldo? Now, if you're 10 or below, you might not have known that. Maybe you did. I'm not sure. It's a little dated, but I think we all get the gist. It's one of those moments when you're, you know, looking at the back of a cereal box or perhaps someone's T-shirt or it probably got on all kinds of items. Where you try to find the character amidst all the noise, confusion, and crowd. Well, forget Waldo. Have your life ever felt this way? And you ask this question Where's God? It seems noisy, confusing, things seem kind of random. You seem like you're on the run. There's a collection of both decent things, bad things, maybe good things, it's trying to piece it all together, and you're wondering where is God in this? In times like that, we tend to lean towards taking matters into our own hands. Would you admit that? When things seem a little scary, unsure, unstable, we tend to think, I better put my hands in this and take care of it. But did you know that in those moments where we wonder where's God? He's actually there in full control, providentially, not coincidentally, handling every detail. We're going to actually define those words in this morning's chapters. We're going to see that what David is in in these two chapters is not coincidental. It's actually providential. Now, maybe you wonder what those mean. Travis will explain what providence means. Can I tell you what coincidence means? It's an Old English word, comes from a French word, and... It's kind of made its way through history since about maybe the early 1600s, but in, in, a, in, in just the simplest form, it means to see agreement now. In other words, something happens here, and something happens here, so in the now, in the moment, you say, oh, this is a coincidence, look what's happening. All you're seeing is in the moment. You're going to see how this makes sense when Travis explains what providence means, but I don't think, after studying more about that word, that coincidence is necessarily bad. We assume it's all random because all we're seeing is in the now. We see this situation, that situation, that event, this occurrence. All look what's happening in the now. This is interesting. But it's actually not uh, random, though it appears that way to us. That's just the meaning of coincidence. It's to see in the now. But God does something better than that. He doesn't see just in the now. Travel is explained in a moment. And we're going to see this played out in this text. 1 Samuel 25 and 26, that really, uh, David's not involved in a number of coincidences in which he needs to put his own hands into it and try to control it. God's weaving a thread throughout this chapter, the ones around it. And he's going to bring David to the throne. Here's what I want to do. You have a handout, right? You should have received when you came in. Not your worship folder, but a, a handout. It's kind of called a kid's handout, but we want all the adults to have it as well. We want to kind of work through that with you. And part of that is going to be reading the chapters on your own this morning. So if you're watching online, if you're listening later by, via our podcast, this might be about 90 seconds of dead space. Just kind of hang in there. The message will continue. You're not losing connection. Don't worry, okay? But take the handout. If you don't have one, raise your hand. Our rushers will make sure you get one. But take about 90 seconds or two minutes and just read the selected verses that we list for chapter 25. I'll come back and kind of walk you through what is going on theologically then Travis will walk you through what's going on practically, okay? So about 90 seconds to 120, read the selected verses for only chapter 25 first as a family, out loud if you want, to your kids or as a couple or on your own, and we'll tackle those together in about two minutes, all right? Ready, set, read. Read. All right, I know you're not done, but hopefully you can finish later today or this week. Let me just move on, though, to kind of rehearse the story with you. Let's do that via our lab, can we? This will help our children in the service this morning kind of follow along with us. I'll pull the lab up here. Travis will kind of take some notes, kind of live with you. Kids, if you're following along with us, uh, just kind of write what Travis writes if you want to. He's going to kind of hear what I'm saying and take some notes. When he's teaching later, I'll do the same on the other side, okay? Okay. But here's kind of chapter 25 in a nutshell. We're going to rehearse the story through three characters. I won't spend a lot of time here. You read the verses just to say that we introduce, first of all, to Nabal, who is a foolish man. In fact, we find out later that his name actually means fool. So Nabal is this businessman who's living in this area where David fled to. Maybe David fled to Carmel. Maybe he went there after Samuel's death because he was a little more... Uh, fearful or, or afraid that maybe with Samuel's death he'd be found out. I'm not sure. He's staying on the run, apparently. But he, he has some interaction with Nabal. We're not sure what it is exactly, but he, his men were helping Nabal's men when there was a shearing going on and providing protection. And apparently from this one situation, follow me closely, David expected something in return. We don't know if there was any kind of legal or formal contract. It doesn't appear there was. There was no arrangement. It just appears that David thought, hey, I've scratched your back. You should what? You should scratch mine. So when he needs some things for his men, mainly food, he says, Nabal has lots of of, uh, supplies, resources. I'll ask him. And Nabal says, who's David? He doesn't get nothing from me. Forget that, right? David takes that personally and says in a rash moment, well, I'll just take Nabal out. So he rounds up his men to go and kill Nabal, but he's interrupted, kind of intercepted by Nabal's wife, Abigail. So here's Nabal, a foolish man. Here's David, initially being a rash man. We find later he becomes reasonable, though. And here's Abigail, who is a brave woman. But what I think is so odd about Abigail, and this is in the story, and I can't explain all of these things, by the way. I can't explain the why behind them. Uh, They're recorded in the Bible, which doesn't necessarily mean they're always approved of. They're just being recorded. And so we have history here, divinely inspired, that Abigail kind of, as Travis will show in a minute, she kind of, you know, takes her husband out. She intercedes for him in an odd way. She goes, don't go and kill him, even though he's a lousy scoundrel. That's kind of what she says, you know? And so David hears this. I don't know all that he's thinking. He does see her beauty, I think that's why the text mentions that. We know that David is a man of, of passion and, and, has, and later on we're going to see he falls to his lust. So I don't know all this in his head, but something is happening here in which Abigail is used by God in the oddest of ways to prevent David from making a terrible mistake and killing a man. God does eventually strike Nabal dead. But in God's time and in God's way, it was after he was drinking and partying, he either has a heart attack or a stroke. We're not sure which exactly, the Hebrew language. But something that renders his body somewhat useless, and ten days later he dies. Upon which David says, oh, well, I'm glad God has intervened. Now I'll marry Abigail. Now he had more than one wife, obviously. And so when you read these things about why Abigail would intervene, like, that's a good thing, but she really doesn't really support her husband. That's not a good thing. David does wait. He doesn't kill Nabal. That's a good thing. But yet he marries this woman and he's already married. That's not a good thing. And so you have this, this constant balancing thing, don't you? Like, well, that's good. That's not so good. That's good. That's not so good. What's happening here, Todd? From a theological perspective, get this. God is showing how he weaves his purposes, shows his mercy, even in the middle of our madness. Okay? Now, when you read these things in Scripture, I don't want you to assume that that God, who's inspired Scripture through these men who wrote it, that necessarily approving that historically recording something is not the same as divinely approving it. And often we read the Bible through the eyes that will everything in it must it must mean that we can do it. Some things are recorded for our example that we shouldn't do, but they're still recorded. And remember, if you make the Bible all about what the people did, you're going to have a problem. Because the Bible's not about man's activity. The Bible's about God's sovereignty. So as we read this, we don't want to get sidetracked by saying, Wow, I'm not sure how to balance all these things. The good, the bad, the ugly, the ups, the downs. Here's what's happening. God is just showing that He can work, even in the oddest of ways, through all kinds of people, to bring His purposes to pass. It's God's mercy, yes, even in the middle of, and in David's case, of what would have been a maddening decision. Maybe even more specific. I think this chapter shows us theologically that when you think you've been dealt a bad hand, and I use that on purpose because I think you should circle every time the word hand is mentioned in these two chapters and just kind of follow the the path of the word hand. David's hand was going to be against Nabal. Uh, Saul's hand was against David. Abishai wanted David to put his hand against Saul. When you think that you've been dealt a bad hand, guess what? Don't assume that God's guiding hand still can't provide for you. Don't we do that when we're wronged? When we think we've been dealt a bad hand, we think we've been wronged, we tend to want to jump in, take control, and say, well, God's fallen asleep. He's forgotten. But I want to assure you theologically, this chapter and the next one show us even in the middle of our madness, or when we think we've been wronged, God's mercy is prominent. His mastery of the moment is still there. And so let's not assume that when we've been dealt a bad hand, that God's hand can't still guide and provide. Do you need more examples like maybe Joseph, who was falsely accused, put in prison, sold by his brothers, and yet God used every bit of that to enable Joseph to be the one who saved his entire family from a famine? How did God get him to Egypt? Through a series of ways in which he was wronged. So when you've been wronged, don't be rash. Don't mistrust. Instead, wait and say, you know what? Here's David's final response. He listened. He waited. And he began to see God's hand working. Even in the middle of wrongful or maddening situations. Travis, bring some more application to us from this, would you?
0: Yeah. So there's three very interesting characters in this text, and I think we can look at those three characters and find some practical application for those. So let's first look a little bit deeper at Nabal. Again, Todd mentioned that Nabal's name means foolish, and throughout the entire chapter that is true of him, and that's his character. And so what we see here is that he's a foolish man, and his foolish character leads to foolish behavior. Everything we know about Nabal is that he is a man who lacked character. Look at verse 11. It says that he had plenty and he wasn't generous. That is a foolish thing to do. Verse 36 says he lacks self-control. Again, the party and he gets drunk. We see that there. And verse 25 is this conversation with David and um, Abigail. And Abigail talks about how her husband lacks character and his wife thinks very lowly of him. Um, Men, we know that our wives know us better than anybody else knows us, right? And so if our wives call us foolish, they're probably correct. Um, So what we see here is (laughs) that Nabal's greatest problem wasn't this specific interaction. It wasn't that he just messed up this one time with David. No, his greatest problem was his lack of character or his foolish character. David, the author of many of the Psalms, writes a lot about the difference between a fool and a wise person. I'm so curious if while he was interacting with Nabal and Abigail, if some of this was written or if he was, as he was writing this later, he interacted or thought about the situation with Nabal and Abigail because it's such an obvious um, difference between wisdom and foolishness. In Psalm 14, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, doesn't the fool also act as if there's no God? They pretend that they're in charge or think that they're the most important person. In Psalm 110, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we see that there's no fear of the Lord in the ball. He's acting as if he's in charge. David's character, let's look at him a little bit. In this chapter, David is hot-headed in our text, and he desperately needs wisdom from the outside. He's responding to being hurt or wronged, and he thinks, I got this. I can solve this. So what's he need? Wisdom from the outside. As great of a man as David was, he definitely had chinks in his armor. He had weaknesses. He had soft spots. Not even David was capable of doing life alone. If it was left up to him, if he was in charge, he would have failed. We all must surround ourselves with people who will help us make wise decisions. What a practical application that is. Which is always to listen to the leading of the Lord. That's what we learn about David. David needed good people in his life. People would speak truth and wisdom into him. What do we learn about Abigail? Abigail was, was wise and she intercessed with David or towards David. For anybody in this room whose name is Abby or Abigail, this is your chapter. This is where your name probably came from. What an amazing, brave woman. If it wasn't for Abigail's intervention, David would have done something hasty and regretted it. Notice that Abigail points David towards God. That's what she does through that entire interaction about what God is doing, not just earthly advice in verses 26 to 31. In verse 26, she gives credit to God for stopping David. Instead of taking the credit herself, she could have said, man, David, you are so lucky I stopped in right at this moment. What a coincidence that I'm able to protect you. No, she says, man, God is the one who stopped your hand, David. Praise God that he put this interaction together. In verse 28, she reminds David that God is above Nabal, that his life is in God's hand, not David's. Don't put Nabal's life in your hands, David. Allow God to be God. David, you're not Nabal's judge. He has a judge. Allow him to be the judge. And then look at David's final response. We talked about it a little bit earlier. In verses 32 to 38, David, after his interaction with Abigail, he praises God for bringing Abigail into his life at that moment. Man, that's a wise thing to do. He praises Abigail for being a woman who knows and fears God And then his final response is, David trusts God and waits. Hmm. Chapter 25 is a beautiful story of David, instead of taking matters into his own hands, submitting and listening to advice. I'm so grateful for those people that have come into my life that God has sovereignly placed into my life that speak wisdom to me, that help me make wise decisions, who protect me from myself and who constantly point me back to God. Who are those people in your life? Think for just a moment those people that God has providentially put into your life to help you make wise decisions and to protect you from from making poor decisions. Now That that takes us to our take-home truth. You'll see the take-home truth of chapter 25 is this. Instead of taking matters into your own hands, trust God's guiding providential hand, especially when responding to wrong. Do you see this in this text? David has an opportunity to say, I got this. You wronged me. You didn't treat my men right. You're done. Instead, he listens to wise counsel. He hears God through Abigail's voice and says, You're right. I'm going to wait. I'm going to listen to God. And he responds correctly. So that's a little bit of chapter 25. I want to walk you through chapter 26 and give you the theological, like Todd did in chapter 25, help you see what God is doing. Are there any questions? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Are there any questions? Oh, perfect. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> perfect. I always get nervous. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to chapter 26. If you have any questions about chapter 26 while I'm talking, feel free to text them in, and I'll make Todd answer those. Yeah. So, um, that would be, hey, well,
1: speaking of the people that you, uh, in our life you know, that we that yeah. listen to, no, seriously, I know your wife's right over there, Casey. Mm-hmm.
0: Don't tell any stories. <laughs> just, just joke. But well, I mean,
1: we could both just attest as form, I'm a former youth pastor, you are a youth pastor. I mean, just how, um, I don't want to even say helpful, that's just a, yeah. a small word, but just our wives are so crucial Absolutely. to just leaning into them and listening to them. When sometimes you're kind of thinking about things from one perspective and our wives talk to us and say, hey, have you thought about this? And I mean, you would attest to that, wouldn't you?
0: Absolutely. So. Yep. Yeah. So grateful for our wives. That's so true. So chapter 26, let me give you kind of the theological. Let's see what God is doing in this story, and then Todd will kind of give us the practical. Chapter 26, I want to give you, we have on your worksheets and on the notes there, there's about 10 verses we want you to read. It should only take about 30 seconds to read 10 verses. So real quick with your families or just individually, go ahead and read just those 10 verses from chapter 26. While you're finishing up, let me brief you, briefly tell you the story. So Saul receives a tip of where David is hiding. Remember, David's a man on the run. He's hiding for his life. And Saul receives a tip of where David is hiding. So Saul grabs Abner. He's the commander of the army. And he grabs 3,000 men to track him down and kill him. And Abner is the commander. Saul's the king. And Saul and his men try to, uh, for the night, have to take uh, a rest. So they've searched all day long. They were unable to find David, so they kind of set up a campground and and take a rest. During the sleep, David and his men are hiding in the wilderness, the text says, and they're spying on Saul and his army. So they're able to see them, but um, Saul and his men are not able to see David. During the night, David realizes that he has an opportunity to go and see Saul and to kill Saul and Abner while they sleep. David's friend Abishai tells David to kill them and be free of the fear that they've had and even says that this is from the hand of God. David chooses not to listen to his friend and instead trusts God and his plan. David takes Saul's water cup and spear to show Saul how close he was to him. In the morning, David yells to Saul and Abner, telling them about what happened last night and to ask them to stop chasing him. Saul admits his sin and asks David to come back to him. So there's a quick summary of chapter 26. Where's the theological? Like, what is God up to? Todd before gave you a definition of coincidence. I want to give you a definition of providence. Literally, the word providence means to see ahead, to see what is coming. So when we say that we should trust God's providential hand, it means that we trust the one who sees ahead. But it's even more beautiful than that, right? Because we know that God doesn't just see the future. He's the author of the future. He's the one writing it. He's the one exa- that making what comes next happen. So of course we would trust the one who can see ahead, but how much more would we trust the one who is authoring and writing what comes ahead? So here's a few of those providences, not coincidences. Saul and Abner just happened to make camp and they're sleeping next to each other and David realizes this and he sees that he has the opportunity to kill them both right but what we learn from that is not always is opportunity a calling to do Mm -hmm. just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean that's an action step and that's a good thing for us to learn so they're sleeping right next to each other so um David and Abishai have a conversation and Abishai says man this is your opportunity go and kill them this you could end this You could stop the fear, the things that you've been running away from. You could end this. Look at verse 12. It says, Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. What do we learn? It's a different kind of sleep. These guys are out from the hand of God. Is that coincidence? No. It's providence. God is allowing this interaction to happen so that he can receive glory. Let's not forget that God is writing the script and these aren't just coincidences. Let's look at David again. How is David responding? Very different than he did in chapter 25. Notice David's cool head and his wise contemplation. In this chapter, we see a much wiser and spirit-led David. David becomes the words of wisdom that Abigail was in the previous chapter. You almost see him acting and responding just like Abigail did in chapter 25. David is speaking words of wisdom to Abishai. Very similar to the words Abigail said to David in the last chapter. Verse 8, Abishai says to David, This is from the Lord. Go and kill Saul. Verse 9, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. Be quiet, Abishai. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're talking about. The last thing we see, the theological implications of this text, is that David understands his duty to respect God's anointed. In verse 9 and 11, David says that. He says, or he helps us to understand, it doesn't matter if you like who is in charge or not. You respect and honor who put that person in charge. Trust the one who sees ahead and knows all things. That's our response, is providence. This story so much reminds me of Peter when he defends Jesus by cutting off the soldier's ear. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah.
0: A wrong is happening. Somebody is mistreating Jesus. Peter steps up and says, I got this. I can solve this problem. Just like David in chapter 25. But Peter responds with human wisdom and Jesus rebukes him for not trusting God's plan. That's Abishai in chapter 26. David, we got this. Draw your swords, men. Let's go. This time David responds and says, hold on. Let's trust God. Let's know that God is in charge. So you see God's providential leading in this text. Todd, you want to help us see the practical implications in this
1: text? I will. I'll finish writing a word that no one can read up there. <clears throat> That's bad advice. Bad advice. And Travis and I will give handwriting a course after the service today, of course <laughs> as well, right? Yeah, practically speaking in 26, I think one of the main words we would do well to pay attention to is the word wait. In fact, wisdom would say to us, waiting is a proper way to respond when we've been wronged. Notice what I did not say, church. Listen very carefully. I did not say that you don't ever respond to the wrong. I didn't say that you don't deal with the issue. I think what we learn through Scripture is, though, that waiting and seeing how God is going to handle things or, or finding out, okay, what's... Going to happen next from his perspective, like he said, what's providentially happening that I need to uh, to lean into first, and not take into my own hands? I think that's a much wiser and more biblical approach. In fact, I think two verses would even help us here. Here's James 1.20. Look at this verse. In fact, kids, just the kids in the room, would you read this with me? I think most of you in this age age range can read. Let's read it, kids. Ready? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when we are in a moment where we feel we've been wronged, and we want to strike back, as in 25, rashly or quickly, we'd be better off to say, no, let's do what David did in 26. Let's wait for a moment. Because my anger in this moment, my rashness, will probably not work the righteousness of God. Here's Romans twelve nineteen. Can we have all the adults read this time? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's an overarching principle, especially related to persecution and being wronged by those on the outside, i.e. pagans. God says, let me deal with them in the end. So I think underneath that would be the idea of waiting. So a practical outworking of this historical narrative in 26 is this. Listen very carefully. This is hard to swallow. And I know it doesn't fit the American lifestyle. But when you're wronged, wait. You're not the only one fighting the battle. God is with you. And He will, uh, as these scriptures say avenge you the problem we have i think often is that we don't want god to wait that long to avenge us do we and so we step in like 25 and we're gonna like you said i've got this we do a peter in the garden or we do a, a david here on in response to the ball but i think the wiser road is one of waiting here's why waiting is is so important because waiting helps battle escalation and escalation is often what hurts relationships. So you hear a word against you. You see an act against you. And so you immediately want to respond... Instead of waiting because you feel like much is at stake or you feel like you're going to lose something. And so what you do in response then in the moment, in a rash moment, is it just escalates. And that person responds back. And you have this battle going back and forth between people. And often what happens is, in the end, no one knows really what the real issue was. You ever had that happen? Either verbally or physically? So I say to you again, church, hear this humbly, would you? When you're wronged, just try and wait. I've not done this well in my life. There have been a few moments I have. I was thinking over the past few weeks, the number of times this kind of came back to haunt me, to be frank with you. But I did think about it a few times like, you know what, I'm really glad I waited then. One of them was when I was in Augusta and we were in a staff meeting. And uh, there was a person on our team who just had it in for me as the youth pastor. I was single and... Um, had some ideas and I thought they were the ones they wanted me to implement I was excited about it but uh, this person was a pretty powerful person on our team and so she just said in staff meeting one day well you're just taking our kids down the wrong path so that kind of was voiced publicly you know and my immediate uh, desire was to defend myself but for some reason in that moment I was like this is not a good place to say anything you know So I just waited. And that really paid off because God used that to show me I I didn't really fit there after all. In fact, the next day I walked into our pastor's office and said, hey, listen, you know what? Um, Whatever happened yesterday, listen, it's no skin off my nose because I I know that wasn't meant towards me. I I know it's just difference of philosophies. And God used that to show me I think I fit somewhere different and better. And He said, you're probably right. And and I, I had a good departure. And so we didn't burn a lot of bridges. At that church. It didn't burn any, in fact. I was so thankful that I waited in that moment. I haven't always waited. But in that moment, I waited, and it proved wise. Um, I was thinking back, even in our home, there have been times I've waited, there have been times I haven't. And without fail, when I've waited, it proved beneficial in our home. The conversation usually went better. The result was better. But when I had to jump in and try to make things equal off the bat... You know, escalation just doesn't accomplish anything. So I just want to encourage you. When you're wronged, wait. It really battles against escalation. And the devil often uses those very moments to hide the real issue and disguise things. And then he gets people personally involved and upset. And we waste time. So here's what I think is a real practical tip. Just learn to wait. Don't be rash. One last thing I'd say to you is this. When you're wrong, you'll probably tend to not want to wait if you are at a weak moment. Here's an interesting part of the narrative I find. Samuel had just died, so David's emotionally distraught. They were close friends. In fact, Samuel was a protector of David in a lot of ways. David left to go to Carmel upon hearing of Samuel's death. In addition, David was... We know he's in a situation living out of a cave. He's on the run. He's not got a lot of food or supplies, which is why he thought Nabal could help him. Hey, could you feed my men? Could I get some things for you? David was hungry, on the run, tired. There's a lot of things about his life that made him physically and emotionally at, at, I would say, a very um, precarious point. Isn't it odd that right then and there, Satan tries to find a way to make us feel like we're wronged or like we're owed something And then we would make a rash decision. You ever notice that? So, be careful. When you are in emotionally or at a physically weak place, don't be surprised if that's when Satan tries to come after you to get you not to wait. Just some practical things I I think we see in, in this text. Any questions come in on chapter 26. We have one. How do I teach my kids that they should be wise to wait... Uh, First of all, that's impossible. No, I'm just kidding you on that one. It's not. How should I teach my kids this wise to wait and not react rashly in anger? A couple of answers, and I'll let Travis lean in with his wisdom. Uh, I would say, first of all, model it. And when you don't model it well, own it. Because the conversation that can come from those moments can be very helpful. Now, I don't think, and Travis will say this in a minute, I don't think you should just Live on always, uh, what do you call it in first service, Monday morning quarterbacking? Mm-hmm. We don't want to live there all the time, right? We want to so often call a good play and run it. Yeah. But, but when, you, when you don't model it well, just apologize to your children. Let them see what it's like to uh, repent. They'll see in that a lifestyle that they can embrace. So try to model it. Um, and I, I think I can speak to this pretty frankly here. I mean, in our home... Uh, 20, uh, maybe like 15 years ago. I mean, this is a real problem with me, just um, a, a lot of issues with my temper and a rashness in my behavior at times that hurt us financially. Uh, it hurt us relationally. But I'm not the same guy I was 15 years ago. I'll just be honest with you. I'm being very transparent to tell you that. i uh, God has done a deep, deep character work in my life. It started about 15 years ago. Most of my kids were little. don't remember a lot of this, uh, but Julie does. And... Um, it took a while, but I'm thankful that I lost my temper for good. Uh, and so I, I know a little bit about the, the tendency to be rash and to be loud and to respond, to try to think you can get your way if you just, you know, are, are stronger or louder. Um, so as God has continued to sanctify me, I think one of the things is just talk to my kids about it. And when we messed up, when I messed up, just to go to the room and say, hey, you know, I didn't model that response well at all. Um, I didn't confess to folks in your community. Like Travis talked about, we all need each other. So listen to their advice and, and have a place where you can work through that. But I'd say model and then own it is two ways I would recommend. What would you say, Travis?
0: I think allow your kids to engage in that conversation when it happens in your life, right? Instead of just seeing how they do and then having the conversation afterwards, say, man, I got this situation in my life. Uh, I don't know how to respond. Uh, what would you do in this situation? I think we also should mention prayer, doesn't prayer make you stop and wait? Hey, God, mm. I need your help. Instead Amen. of responding right now, I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to allow and get your kids in on that and allow them to hear your prayer requests and the situations they need your help in. I think those are Amen. some good.
1: So in light of that, let's see what our take-home truth is for 26. And oddly, it's the same as it is for 25. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, like the Bible's got a thread it's teaching us, right? Let's read this together, shall we? Instead of taking matters into your own hands, trust God's guiding, providential hand, especially when responding to wrong. So if you had to prioritize when you've got to trust God's providence, know that it will be most important when you're responding to wrong. Okay? You won't bat a thousand. None of us do. But when we swing and miss, when we foul off, let's be honest, in this community of people that we're engaged with, and let's work to get to that place where we are encouraging you to trust in the Lord's hand. And while you're trusting, wait. This was David's good response in 26, and it was Abigail's good advice in 25. This is our goal as a body of believers as well. Now, I want Travis to make this application even more specific to a set of people here with us today. It's our high school seniors from local high schools. So if you are graduating and you're here, why don't you come onto the platform, would you? And though you're thinking, well, man, I can just kind of tune out now. This is for seniors. You'll be shocked at how much of what he's going to say as we close will really relate to all of us in the room. So as they come, will you welcome our seniors to the platform, would you?
0: Hi, guys. Hi, guys. I think it's uh, one of the best parts of my job is to be able to just see kids grow up. So I came here three years ago and these guys had just finished their freshman year of high school and I think that's just one of the best parts of my job is to be able to see them grow up and see what God does and just have an opportunity to speak into their life. And so so guys, I want to uh, let you introduce yourselves. We'll have their names on the screen behind you. But just go ahead and real quick, uh, say your name and what school you graduated from. I'm Nate Johnson, graduating from Ankeny High School. Sophia Fletcher, graduating from homeschool. Emily Urban, graduating from Ankeny High School. I'm Razer Goza, and I'm in homeschool my whole life. Hi, I'm Savannah Byers. I'm graduating from Prairie City Monroe High School. I'm Brooke Stiles, and I'm graduating from Ankeny High School. I'm Anna Hensel, and I'm graduating homeschool with some contributions from Ankeny High School. Um, I'm Megan Schmidt, and I'll be graduating from Sado High School. Matthew Sizzik, and I'll be graduating from homeschool. I'm Jenna Broughton, and I'll be graduating from Ankeny High School. I'm Frankie Porter, and I'll be graduating from Ankeny High School. I'm Megan Stubbs, and I'll be graduating from Grandview Christian High School. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Let's give them a round of applause (laughs) for their. So for the last three years, I've had opportunities to speak into your life and to kind of point you to Scripture, and I want to do that same thing real quick today based upon our text. I know I'm not done speaking into your life, and I'm grateful for the opportunities I have in the future, but based upon our text today, and just the opportunity we have to say congratulations to them, I want to bring out just a few things from our text that we see as you guys look forward to the next phase of your life, which is college. So based upon 1 Samuel 25 and 26, I see three things that are very important Uh, for college seniors and for the high school seniors and for the rest of us. Number one, you need Abigails in your life and not Abishai's. The next four years, you're going to have a lot of Abigails and Abishai's in your life. Learn to listen to the Abigails and put up with the Abishai's. Learn to understand biblical wisdom and who that comes from and who not to listen to. That's going to be a difficult road to walk the next four years. Surround yourself with people like Abigail. Look for them, spot them, and allow them to speak into your life. That's one thing youth ministries do well, is we create community. You still desperately need gospel community. So create that. Make that a priority. Even though youth group's done, you desperately need that. In your gift today, there will be an invitation to first family young adults. Make that a priority. You're going to be busy, I understand that, but you desperately need gospel community. You need Abigails in your life. Look for them. Number two, you desperately need to know what biblical wisdom is and looks like. And how do you do that? Read the Bible. For the next four years, you are going to read a lot of books. You're going to write a lot of papers and read a lot of books. Read this book more. This is where we understand how life looks and what the best road is and what it's all about and who it ultimately is about. So make this book what you make your life about. As your gift this year, we have a Bible for you. I'm excited to give that to you. Make that book your number one treasure. Make your life about that. And the last thing, which was our take home truth, is trust God's guiding, providential plan. Don't take over for God. My dad used to say, and often does still say, stop asking yourself what you want to do with your life and ask God what he wants to do with your life. That's a better question. Don't worry about your 10-year plan. Take the next right step and trust God has got you. Stay close to your church family and ask for advice often when it comes to life decisions. Be similar to David. Listen to good advice and then implement good wisdom. Stay connected. You need each other. You need gospel community and that will set your life up for trajectory that honors and serves God. So it's been a privilege of mine to be able to invest in your life I know that's not done, but many of you will transition and move. And you know that this congregation loves you, they care for you, and they'll be praying for you, and they're here to talk to you. So no matter what happens next, no matter where life takes you, no matter where, what God's providential hand leads and guides in your life, know you need gospel community. You need the word of God, and then learn to listen to him.